Welcome to Stories from the Park, a Heritage Park podcast. Hi, I'm Kasaya Quill, Chief Curator. And I'm Dominic Terry, Communications Manager here at Heritage Park. We are located on Treaty 7 land in Calgary, Alberta, a place where visitors come to learn about the history of all those who have gathered here and where Indigenous people proudly share cultural traditions and tell stories about the rich heritage, history, and attachment to the land. Today we're talking about a topic near and dear to our hearts, living history. What is living history? Is it more than just a group of people in period clothing telling stories? How does it differ from historical reenactment? What are the unique challenges in pulling it all off? Our guests today are costume designer Meg Furler and Sarah Edwards, who manages the interpretation department at Heritage Park. Sarah and Meg, thank you very much for doing this with us today. Thanks for having us. Thanks. Yeah, we're excited to be here. This is more of almost like um, kind of behind the scenes. I'm the one who hasn't been working in uh, in interpreting and uh, and curating living history for uh, for a living. I uh, have just joined this kind of motley crew here in the last um, almost a year or so. So I'm sort of in interviewing the three of you as much as Kasai is going to ask some questions as well. But why doesn't somebody go first? Um, and just, I guess, just explain what living history is as at its core. There are a couple of different definitions um, of living history, kind of at its purest, in its purest form, it's considered to be um, immersing people in a particular time and place in the past through um, immersive reenactment and recreation of uh, various historical trades, buildings, experiences, events, uh, lifestyles, characters, etc. And um, kind of opening the eyes of the public to those things and really just giving an experience of what life was like at a particular place in a particular time period in as immersive a way as possible. And so what goes into that? So let's let's try it. Let's go from from two different perspectives, Sarah. From your perspective as a manager of interpretation, what does that look like for you? And then Meg from the costuming department, how does that look for you? Um, so for me, that looks like kind of picking out, I like to focus very much on the lived experience. So what was it like to live, be a person alive in this time and in this place? So what kinds of food did you eat? What kinds, and I'll leave the what kinds of clothes did you wear to Meg? Because that's really more her area. But um, what kind of education did you have? What kind of job opportunities? What kind of skills? Um, what were your family relationships like? Um, what was your political and socioeconomic outlook? Um, how did you relate to the people around you? And kind of every aspect of what was it like to be a human alive in this time period, in this location? And then from my perspective, it's taking all of those different components and translating them through textiles. And so my role as costume designer is to give people a tool, the clothing and the different accessories they have to tell those different stories. And so using all of those different components that Sarah just talked about, my role is to figure out a really interesting balance between the historical context to this historical silhouette, shape, fabrics, all of those different components, but then also make sure that they work for a modern um, staff, modern washing machines, 
modern um, transportation and different things like that of you're having to figure out what that staff member's place in history would be, but also connecting with what are they actually doing today in their real lives. And so making sure that there's a really interesting balance between the old and the new. Yeah, I was gonna say curatorial plays a part in this too. We kind of um, make the setting. So all the things that Sarah mentioned, this background of people, we take the buildings and then we bring them back in time because all the buildings in our living history sites exist into the present. And so we have to think about the furnishings that would be in there for different um, types of people, what kind of occupations they have, those sorts of things all come together and make the building where Meg and Sarah can take uh, it further with the people in it. So I make the setting and do the research to tie the larger narratives from each different space together. Okay, so people, places, and things all coming together uh, in in one there. I guess from from the perspective of, of of Heritage Park, and we have a number of different areas in the park that represent different time periods. Kind of speak to the intricacies of that of 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 interpreting that history and and what that looks like. I love it. Um, I've worked at a couple of different living history sites now, some that are multiple time periods like Heritage Park is, and then some that are just one time period. Um, I think that there's a give and take regardless of which direction you decide to go. I really like the multiple time periods because although we aren't able to get as deep or as well-rounded into any one of them, we can really show a narrative progression in the development of a particular area. So in our case, Southern Alberta, we're able to show the 1880s to the 1910s to the 1920s to the 1930s and really show that evolution. And you can see a lot of really different changes. And that's a time in Alberta's history where there's a lot of change very quickly. So I find it really interesting to be able to show such very different things. Um, and when, we were talking yesterday about kitchens. And so even just to be able to show in two or three different time periods, the different cooking implements and the different recipes and the different mm -hmm. foodstuffs that were available in this place simply by changing time periods. I find that fascinating. And I think that's a huge strength that we're able to have. So I love being able to show that evolution and show those differences. Yeah, absolutely. Agree on that. I really like the space that that gives you to kind of play and allow yourself to kind of make threads between different time periods. One of the things that I really enjoy about it is that we all throughout history of very basic life things that we need to accomplish, like getting to and from different places, making food, um, doing laundry or whatever all of those different components are. And so one of the things that I like to show through my work in textiles is that regardless of what the um, fashionable silhouette or the perception of what the clothing looks or feels like, is that really it's still a day-to-day -day work clothing, work outfit. And so that's what I find really interesting is that it's really easy to look in a traditional museum and books online and find some of those really high fashion pieces. But it's the day-to-day -day pieces that I think are the really important part of living history and telling the story of kind of everyday people. And I think that that's the connection that 
makes it more real for people and gives them uh, more of that immersive experience. Um, one of the challenges that we, of course, have is that we can't cover every single detail um, through the clothing and we need to kind of narrow that down a little bit. And so, for example, in our um, famous five house, we've decided to have a very specific time period for the clothing that's 1926 to 1932. And so, yes, that is very narrow. But if you go outside of that, the clothing silhouette changes so, so much that it starts to become confusing for the visitor. Even if they don't really understand why it's not connecting, it just makes it a little bit difficult. And so we look at that throughout the park as well of what is the visual story that we're telling through clothing and how do people move around the park and, and all of those different components. One thing that you guys have mentioned here in the last in in that answer, it seemed like everybody touched on food at some point in time. Kasaya, why don't you talk about, it kind of falls right into your wheelhouse. So why don't you talk about the food waste program here and kind of what we, where, where we do it, how we, uh, how we interpret that. Yeah. So food waste do fall under Sarah's um, purview, but um, I am, working on food history in a different context, but it, the park is where I learned to love food history and food waste programming. And what's really cool about it is we have uh, three sites on the park where we do food, um, one of which is in the 1880s. And so we used actually three different time periods. So the 1880s one focuses, uh, is in Livingston House, which is a, a Métis site, um, which is cool because you can start to explore more in the last few years, how Métis food ways are a bit different from uh, food in 1880 Toronto, uh, because a lot of the sources that we have for food history in that time period are for specific people. And it, we don't have cookbooks from 1880 that were made by Métis people. So you have to do a little bit more research and discovery there and connect with communities to find out what their traditional recipes are. And so I really like where that site has been going in the last bit, where they're exploring a bit more seasonality and exploring local foods and how that impacts people di people's diets. Um, but a big role in Alberta is the arrival of the railway. So we get to 1905 in the ranch house and food is similar, but quite a bit different as well, because they have access to a lot more ingredients that come from all over the world. So you're seeing more food that looks more familiar to what we might have today. And then you also have this context of ranching and you got to feed a lot of people on a ranch if it's a big ranch. Um, so there might be people who are working as cooks at your ranch. And so that's a completely different story than someone who is in your site, um, who would be the housewife who's cooking for her family. This might be a Chinese man who is cooking for all of uh, a whole crew of ranchers. So that's kind of a really interesting way that you can tell stories through food in there. And the other one we have is our 1910s-ish cooking in um, the rectory. And that's a completely different story as well, because you have someone who invites people over a lot for, or invites them over to have some drop over. And it tells a completely different story because they have to be a little bit more prepared to have things uh, available like cookies or cakes and snacks and that. And so these programs are always evolving as we learn more about food history. Um, because it, when we started the programs, it wasn't a huge field of study. 
Um, and now I think that we have more access to sources like cookbooks and recipes online, we can really take our food waste programming into a more accurate and more interesting kind of place for visitors to engage with. The thing to kind of build on what Kasaya was saying, the thing that I like the most about foodways, um, and it's true for both foodways and schoolhouses, are that they are universal experiences. Absolutely. It really doesn't matter what your background is, how old you are, where you grew up, where you live now, everybody eats regularly, I hope, and everybody has gone to school at some point in their life. And so one of the things that we try and do as a living history museum is relate to the people and make it relevant to the guests who are coming through because that will help foster that connection between themselves in 2022 or, and whichever time period it is that we're portraying. And so we're trying to kind of bridge that gap across time to foster those connections between people of the present and people of the past. And shared experience is one of the strongest and kind of lowest barrier way to do it. And then the other thing about food waste that is really wonderful is one of the benefits that we haven't talked about yet as far as living history is that we have the opportunity to engage multiple senses. Um, a traditional museum uh, has a lot, a lot of good things. There are a lot of traditional museums that I visited and I love, but it's a lot of looking at things uh, behind glass or behind a barrier as opposed to being able to actually physically and tangibly engage with those things. And a food waste program you walk into the house where the food is being made and you know food is being made because you can smell it right away mm -hmm. and you can see how it's happening. Maybe you can touch some of the different uh, materials or you can help out by beating the eggs or adding the flour to the mixture or whatever it is. Um, and I mean, we're not, unfortunately, we're not able to offer taste as an experience to our guests, but food waste is one of the ways where we can really engage the whole person as opposed to just one element usually visual yeah shared perspective is uh important I, i'm getting this idea and uh correct me if i'm wrong but that shared experience is one of those things that kind of cuts to the heart of of interpreting living history yeah so interpreting living history relevance is one thing that threads through just about every single theoretical book you'll read about it um relevance is one of freeman tilden's original principles of interpreting and it comes up in just about every acronym that i've ever heard of um and that is by making your interpretation relevant to the people in front of you you will engage their interests you will hold their interest and they will walk away feeling like they've had a better experience, but also more likely to remember an element of it um, because you've made it relevant to them. If it's about something that has absolutely nothing to do with their lives, they're probably not going to care nearly as much. And I think that goes the same for clothing, right? It just like food, yeah. it's a cultural connector. Everyone covers or uncovers their body in, in various different ways. And um, so looking at the way that those textiles are used, how they're worn, how they're made, also really feeds into historic skills and trades, which is something that I'm really passionate about as well. Um, and that's where kind of my background in living history has come from, is, is actually kind of getting in there and showing how things were made and, and done. And I think that that's something that 
um, the, the development of the sewing machine is such a fun piece to talk about. And I mean, really the technology hasn't changed in 150 years. It's just, you know, we added electricity, but, um, for the most part, there's certain things like that in, in textiles that we take for granted that have changed so much and really they're not, they're, they've stayed the same. And so figuring out how you, you know, make things and, and get textile related things is, is really fun piece to connect with as well. Let's drive there then just a little bit more, Meg. Um, when we have, obviously, uh, I am costumed as a as a spokesperson for the park when I'm on television or whatever. Um, it's very warm. Um, most of the time as I'm wearing a three-piece suit that's wool-based. It, it has is, are there challenges in in your uh, in your vein here that that uh, you try to overcome? Say if somebody wanted something that wasn't as warm, or something that they wanted to be warmer, or something that you know they need a certain pair of shoes that they you know what are what challenges do you guys come up against there? Yeah, so that's a really interesting question. That is a part of our job that we don't necessarily focus on so much because it's just so deeply ingrained in what we do. And so we don't costume interpreters. We don't costume um, specific roles. We costume people. And so each person that comes into our department is treated as an individual, regardless of whether they're working as a paid actor, a housekeeper, grounds maintenance, etc. Everyone is kind of treated as this is the base costume. How can we tweak this for you? And so that's one of the interesting things for us is that we do a lot of education around how to wear some of this clothing. In today's society, we're so used to things with stretch. And I think sometimes the illusion of um, stretch being so comfortable and so flexible um, gives us this kind of alternate view that things that are not stretched or things that are cotton or wool are going to be heavy and uncomfortable. And if you think about human history and how many millennia people have been wearing what they've been wearing and survived, I think we need to shift our perspective on that just a little bit and make sure that we understand people aren't wearing things because it's cumbersome and they aren't wearing things because it doesn't work for them. And so it's finding how does the historic clothing actually support your work? So one of the biggest projects that we took on in 2022 was actually to redesign all of our front gate retail costumes. So the pieces that they were wearing previously, yes, were historically accurate, but they were designed in a very modern way, unfortunately. So what we've done is actually take a step back and go back to a more historical silhouette and uh, more historical fabric. And what we're finding is that it's much, much easier for our staff to be able to operate, whether that be on hot or cold days, because you can adjust the amount of layers that are underneath of your clothing or over top. So the more layers you have, the more that you can kind of insulate your body to or from the outside. And then also looking at um, for next year, we're looking at adding in a lot more linen. So linen is a historical workhorse. It has been around forever. And um, when it is worn next to the skin, it has absolutely fantastic properties for helping to manage your temperature. So of course, through you know various environmental factors, we keep seeing our summers are warmer and warmer. And so we need to consider that. So we're not just thinking about the fibers and the fabrics 
and the styles that we're making people, um, but also thinking through how are we educating people on how to take care of themselves? How do you wear clothing and um, make sure that, yes, it, it may feel counterintuitive to make sure your sleeves are rolled down, but then the sun isn't on your skin. And so that's actually going to help protect you and keep you from feeling too warm. So that's something that Sarah and I have done a lot of work on and, and just different pieces of education, working with our safety team as well to ensure that this is all clarified so that we, again, understand people haven't just been not wearing sunscreen for millennia and, you know, getting sunburned every day. They're there are different ways historically that we can actually use to teach our staff and then in turn engage our guests as well. Um, so there's a lot of um, things that we as managers have to teach our staff so that then they can teach our guests. Interesting. Um, at the core of, of all of this uh, are the interpreters and the staff that are out there, volunteers um, that are out there on the park, I guess you could, you know, for lack of a better term, playing the role of of who who they are. Why don't you guys, Kasaya, you can start on this one. Why don't you talk about, and from your point of view, I guess nobody gets to the positions that you guys are in um, without actually having done some interpretation in the past, and some of you probably more in-depth than others. Kasaya, why don't you start? What makes an interpreter either good at their job or is it something that you can learn over a period of time? I've heard Sarah talk about this in the past, but why don't you start off? Oh, yeah. I think um, most the first is that they, they're interested in what they're doing. I think that the best interpreters are ones that are interested in the topics that they're sharing with the public. So for me, um, when I used to do tour guiding uh, at the park, I told my guides that the tours were set out in a, a specific layout and there were specific sites we were supposed to hit and talk about. But if there was one site you preferred to talk about and had a really good story to tell about it, that is where you should go. Make sure that it's interesting to you because you're more engaging when you are more interesting, uh, more interested uh, in something. and. I think um, like my favorite way I interpret or have interpreted in the past, and I love doing agricultural interpretation because I just love agricultural machines. And it's way more fun for me as an interpreter to do something that I love because it's I'll, like, I can talk forever about an agricultural machine or I can talk forever about food because I love it. And people are happy to engage with people who are interesting and interested. And you can absolutely learn how to do it. Um, some people have never interpreted a day in their life before they've shown up at the park. And I think uh, we work on training them and teaching them. And that's really more Sarah's role. So I'll let her kind of talk about that process. Um, so yeah, I agree with everything that you just said, Kasaya. Um, for a little bit of background, so my title at Heritage Park is Manager of Interpretation. So my job focuses entirely around uh, leading the team of paid and volunteer interpreters who you see out on site in the summertime in Gasoline Alley all winter. And, and for me, the biggest skill that I look for when I'm recruiting, and I spend a lot of time every February, March, April recruiting a lot of people, is communication skills. Um, 
because at, at its core, to me, being an interpreter is about connecting with and engaging with the public who are coming through. Um, we like to joke that it's hard, um, you know, if you start a conversation with an interpreter, you're gonna be there for a while because interpreters love to talk because literally their entire job is to talk. Um, and then on top of that, everything that Kasaya said about being interested is so, so valuable because a good interpreter who is interested in a subject can take any can take that subject, no matter how boring it might seem to somebody else and make it interesting. But an interpreter who is doesn't have very good communication skills or is not very interested in a topic can take a really fascinating area and make it sound boring. Um, so combining those two things is really, really important. Um, we can teach historical content. We've got all kinds of resources, but communication skills and that desire to talk to people all day long, that desire to talk about the same things all day long and answer the same question 50 times in a row. Um, and then that um, intelligence level really to do as Kasaya said and interject your own interests and your own areas of knowledge and be able to connect to the things that really fascinate you. And then also to be able to combine that with reading the guest and tailoring what you're talking about to what they're interested in, because now we're coming back to that relevance. We want it to be interesting to them as much as interesting to us. Um, so a really great interpreter is somebody who's able to read the guest and read their interest level and realize that just because I'm fascinated by how this stove works and um, how all the different pieces and the recipes, maybe the person in front of me isn't as interested and I need to read their the cues that they're giving me to realize that I need to stop talking about this thing and look at where their eyes are looking and actually talk about that polo stick that's up on the wall because that's what they keep glancing at. So being able to be constantly shifting and there is no script in interpretation. We talk about it being organized, being thematic, being relevant, but no two experiences are the exact same. So you need to be able to think on your feet and be comfortable doing that and then have those communication skills. And that's, that's what I look for the most is, can you communicate? And then my background is in interpreting historic traits. Um, so I, I am a fourth generation seamstress. And so this is a lovely way for me to connect with my family history. Um, but it's also something really interesting that I've been able to bring to the park. And so I was able to do um, an internship in my master's that really taught me how how to interpret trades. Yes, I can do a trade, but learning how to interpret that trade. And just as um, Sarah was saying, find that kind of hook for the guest in front of you, of what exactly they're interested in. Some people just want to watch you do a trade and some people actually want to ask you a million and one questions. And so one of the fun pieces that I've done the past couple of years one of the really lovely things that's come out of COVID for me is that I've had the opportunity to go out and be out into the park a little bit more. And so my team has gone out um, on afternoons and actually worked on things that we need to do for the costume shop, but done it in a public way. So one of my favorite pieces was to be able to bring out a treadle sewing machine and work on it throughout a weekend um, to make a quilt that was then going to be raffled off at one of our fundraisers. And um, 
halfway through the first day, the belt on the treadle broke. And I swear there was immediately a flock of about three gentlemen who were super mechanically inclined that all of a sudden realized I was doing something with the mechanics underneath. And so it was something that they were interested about, but they weren't really sure how to approach. And if I hadn't been on park doing that in front of them and they could feel that they could come up and chat about it and learn this is the way I do it. You can try it a couple different ways, but here's how you replace a belt on a treadle because I couldn't do any other work until I, I fixed that. So that's something that I'm really interested in as well as is just kind of doing that firsthand thing of all different ages. And it's really fun. That's cool. That's a great story. Um, for all three of you guys, as we finish up here, what, where are we going? I mean, we talk about history and history is is the same, right? It, it stays the same. It, it is the, you know, how you interpret it might be different. Where is living history going? Where, how is it changing? How has it changed? And, and where do you guys see it kind of going in, in, you know, in the next decade? Well, history doesn't stay the same, first of all. So history continues to ebb and flow as we continue to bring more diverse perspectives and histories and just different stories forward. It just gives us a better understanding of the full picture of history. And so that's one of the things that I love about living history is that every year is a little bit different depending on the interests and the backgrounds of the staff and the volunteers that we have here at the park, those different narratives will continue to ebb and flow. And so that's one of the things that I really love. What I would love to see, and I think where I hope the park is going, is to really continue to push those boundaries forward and, and just engage so many different people. I think it just makes the story so much better. There are so many different perspectives and different things that we can talk about. Again, through those cultural connectors, like we've talked about through textiles, through food, through, you know, growing food. So I I hope that that's where we're headed is just to continue to add to that story. On what Meg was saying, I like to think about it as we want more and more to be able for every guest who walks through to be able to see their story being told on the park. So the story of their heritage and their connection to Calgary and Southern Alberta um, and being able to tell more and more and more from different perspectives, exactly like Meg said, gives us a much more well-rounded and holistic experience. Um, The other place where I see living history going and has been really angling towards in the last few years is skill preservation. Mm -hmm. We, Um, particularly with what Meg was talking about with the historic trades is, I mean, we depict and across the industry of living history show a lot of very different trades and skills that are no longer as much employable trades and skills in the 21st century that we live in. So um, tinsmithing and coopering and, um, printmaking are trades that aren't alive anymore in the same way as they were in the time periods we show. And so one of the things that living history museums can do and that the industry is really trying to do is to teach and preserve and pass on those skills. Because if we don't take an active role in doing that, we will lose them Uh, because not every single one of them is 
popular right now as a hobby. I mean, we're lucky that um, textile work started to really make a comeback over the last few years when everybody was at home during various lockdowns. Um, so there is still some quilting and some knitting and some spinning and some wool dyeing um, and blacksmithing is becoming a popular hobby again, but not every single trade is. And so it's up to us to really do what we can to pass on those skills so that we can continue to demonstrate them and show them and get people interested in them. Yeah, I definitely see like they do the trades becoming a really important part of living history as we go forward, partially because um, there are things that are dying, but also because they are ways that we can tell stories that don't um, that can be told about anyone. So I think that it allows us opportunity to show people everywhere um, like when they come here, they can see themselves in the trade somehow. And I think that that's the really great thing for that. I think we have a lot to work of work to do going forward to um, respond to the changes in history that we are learning about um, with TRC and Black Lives Matter and all of those things on the park. Um, I think that it's exciting to have this great period of time where we have opportunities to reflect what the public who comes here is looking for. And I think that that is kind of going to be our strength is that we get to flex our muscles and our brains and think about where we can go so that everyone who comes here feels like they belong. Well, I think that that's a pretty good way to end it off guys, your passion for, uh, for talking about this and the stuff, the amount of things that I've learned from you guys over the last, you know, nine months that I've been here and, and going forward, I'm really excited to, uh, to uh, have this conversation with you guys today. So thanks a lot. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thank you guys for joining us. <laughs>